doesn't. <laughs> hey, this morning we're going to be taking a look at um, John chapter 4, if you want to open your, your uh, Bibles to that passage now uh, and, and get ahead. But this morning, um, I think it's interesting how the Lord uh, shared with Deacon Michael about this morning being a, a morning of proclamation, of declaring, uh, because what has been on my heart is how, uh, as a church, uh, he's been kind of morphing us, he's been transforming us even into a new people corporately, a new organization, a new entity, if you will. Um, and you know, I wanted to, to take a minute to, to think about our vision as a church this morning. As you guys walk in, you know we have it um, plastered on the wall right when you walk in. So much so, there, those of us who are regulars probably walk right by and don't even see it anymore. But it says right there that our vision is, one word, transformation. This is what we believe happens when we encounter and embrace the love of God. Transformation happens. It transforms lives. But my question for us this morning is, do we see it? We say, our mission is to love, embrace God's love, and share it freely And then we believe that when we are accomplishing that mission, we're going to see transformation. Are you seeing it? Like, what what are we seeing in in regards to that? Is that vision actually happening? Or are those just letters on a wall that spell out a word that doesn't really carry meaning? I was thinking about this because um, Mike and I recently started meeting on Tuesday mornings. Uh, He started something called F3 Nation. It's this men's workout group and uh, you know we're working on getting our physical bodies back in shape because the only transformation that we've seen since high school is in the wrong direction (laughs) and we're trying to undo some of the some of the you know damage the years have cost (laughs) but this is what I think I think sometimes the biggest transformation that we see the most evident transformation that we see at least the transformation that grabs our attention is transformation in the wrong direction. When we get, when we get an, an injury or we get wounded, it grabs our attention. Oh, man, that's, something's transformed and it's not right. We feel the pain that grabs our attention. But are we seeing the transformation of God working to redeem and restore, rejuvenating our lives and our spirit? Are we seeing that kind of transformation? And for that matter, what does that even look like? What are we expecting? What are we expecting? Anybody? What do you expect to see when you say my vision is transformation? What does that look like? Though? How do you know when you see it? Change for sure. If you got, you feel it internal. That's definitely where it starts. It starts on the inside. That's right. And when as you begin to experience it it then, it, it leaks. It starts to come out, and now there's things that you can actually see, things that are demonstrated. Transformation reveals itself in the way that things are being done differently now. It starts on the inside where you can't see, but then, then it has out exterior results, things that are measurable. You know, if you read along in today's, uh, to this week's gospel reading plan, The passages that we read were different chapters in the scripture that talk about the good news. 
And one of those was Isaiah 61. All through Isaiah 61, we see what transformation looks like. Just a couple of those highlights are this. It talks about how the brokenhearted, are, the broken hearts are mended. That's transformation. Those who are in bondage experience freedom, transformation. Those who are mourning are comforted. Those who were in the ashes, now it turns to beauty. Beauty from ashes, it says in Isaiah 61. Joy in place of mourning. This is the vision of transformation that we're looking for. This is the transformation that the Bible talks about. And this is what we believe that we can see and will see with our own eyes as we engage and partner with the Lord as he's working in our midst. And not just in our own lives. This transformation that we envision is not just for us. It starts on the inside. That means it starts in me here. And then it grows out. It's in us as a people, as a church. We are a transformed community. But it doesn't stop there. Now that transformation goes out and it bleeds out into our homes and neighborhoods, into our workplaces. It continues. It's contagious. And it grows Now, we have to also think about this, though. What does it take to see this kind of transformation? How do we see freedom for for those in bondage? How do we see beauty from ashes? See, before we get to the beauty, you have to sit with that person in the ashes. If it's all just beauty, there's no transformation there. It's just beautiful. If it was always just freedom... There's no transformation there. We need to go and be in proximity with those in bondage. And as they experience the love of Jesus Christ, we see them transformed from bondage to freedom. If we believe that we're going to see transformation, then now we have to mingle with those who are in mourning and watch the transformation as they experience the joy of the Lord. If we're going to see transformation, we need to see what happens first. We need to see the condition of things as they are. Not just as we believe they can be, but as they are. And then walk with one another as we move to that place. And, you know, this is the exact thing that Jesus was criticized for. He was hanging out with those in the ashes. He was hanging out with those in rebellion and rejected from society. This is who he spent his time with, and he was criticized for it. But those who he spent his time with experienced the transformation that happens when you encounter the living God. John chapter 4. Uh, let's read the first few verses, starting in verse 3. Now, this is the story of the woman that Jesus encountered at the well. It says here, John 4 3. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. So he was traveling from southern Israel up to northern Israel. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria. It was called Sychar. Now near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his, because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. From this passage this morning, I want to glean some things about how we see things differently. How do we see things 
in a new way. Because that's what I believe he is challenging us to do. See things in a new way. And so just to put it out there, I want to ask rhetorically now, you answer this to yourselves. Can you see what God sees? Or as a matter of fact, do you want to? Let's start there. Do you want to see what God sees when he sees us? What if he were to choose to show you? Are you willing to believe what he's showing you? And if he shows you what he sees when he looks at you and those around you, and you're willing to believe it, now, are you willing to partner with him and what he is doing in those circumstances? And if not, why do we want to see it in the first place? We're just being nosy. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word today. And um, I pray that you would help us to see what you see, God. Help us to lift our eyes now and be able to look with a new level of discernment and be able to recognize with spiritual eyes where you are at work in lives around us, how you are at work, and how you would have us to join you in that, Father. We're looking to you, Lord, and we're dependent on your spirit for this. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder if we have any uh, runners in the room today. Are there anybody who, who's, who doesn't... Is, Involved in running it at all? None? Ex-runners? Ex-runners? I mean, I guess that's the closest we got. Hey, Angel, you're a runner. Didn't you just do like 10K the other day? You did a half marathon. Look at that. That's awesome. Oh, actually, Kate, you ran... Uh, what did you run a couple months ago? Marathons? Holy cow. Wow. All right, sorry. I didn't mean to blow up your spot. You seem to want to keep that a secret. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. Yeah, has anyone ever try or want to be a runner? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that looks really awesome. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to do it until you do it a couple times. You're like, what are they thinking? <laughs> it's one of those things where like being, being like a long-distance runner is like hard to envision because it's just, I don't know, not, not fun. Bo- oh, boring. Okay, yeah, boring. I know a guy who, who he goes for these long-distance runs and takes a tennis ball and just bounces it and just catches it and bounces it. So he's, he keeps his mind busy because he gets bored on the runs. But, you know, there's, there's these things, something about, like, running marathons. Like, hey, I don't know how you do it. I do have a personal goal. I want to run a marathon. But uh, I don't know if I'll ever get there. I'll cheer for you. <laughs> You'll cheer for me. All right, well, I'll let you know when I'm going to do it. I think I'm just going to get up one morning and just, like, go. It, it might take me 10 hours, but talk to Jeremiah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also the, one of those things called ultra marathons where these guys literally run for like through the night. It's like over 100 miles. And these guys, they just, they just don't stop. Like they keep moving. It's, it's insane. Like there has to be something almost kind of tapped. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's hard to envision ourselves like that because it is such a, a difficult thing to attain. It's so far out of our reach, it's just not realistic. So you can kind of watch and and observe other people do these things, but to see ourselves in that place, like, it doesn't even cross really the mind for for most of us. But, you know, they have these things called couch to 5K. 
couch to half marathon or couch to... Anyone ever try that? Or is that just me? It is something that takes you on a course practicing from literally being a couch sitter. And it takes you through the progressions of being able to run 5K, 10K, however, whatever your goal is. And so I tried one of those programs for about three days. And then I ended up back on the couch. <laughs> Didn't work for me. <laughs> I could, I could, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do the process. I'm just going to run a marathon. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and I'll keep somebody on speed dial for when I hit the ground that it'll call them. And <laughs> or Stephanie will be there so that she can call the ambulance. <laughs> but you know, this, this, this couch to 5K, this, this kind of training program, like this is actually a relatively like successful thing because it, it is designed to help the average person who is tired every day after work, they're maybe slightly overweight, they've got little motivation to do a whole lot else once they're home from the workday, and they can't really see themselves running, but it helps them through the progressions to just these tiny little baby steps to get to the ultimate goal. And so it works so well because it keeps the goal in mind, saying this is where we're headed, but don't worry about that right now. Here's today's task. Go and run for 10 minutes. Or for some people, run for five minutes, walk for five minutes. Run for five minutes, walk for five minutes. Just worry about today's task. And don't get ahead of yourself. Thing is, when I think about our walk with the Lord and even our vision for uh, non-believers who don't yet know him, I think sometimes that our expectations for non-believers actually becoming Christians are similar to our expectations for the average couch-sitting person to getting up and running a marathon. We just don't see it happen. It ain't happening. We don't really entertain it. It's too, it's too far of a reach. There's, there's, there's no possible way. But the reality is, for any given person, no matter who they are, they can come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. No matter where their starting point is, no matter how heavy the bondage is or what kind of rebellion they're living in, how calloused their heart is, they can come to know Jesus and place their faith in him and experience transformed life. They can know that. They may look and even be far from God, but we have to remember that that's still a person that Jesus died for. And his invitation has gone out to that person. The invitation to relationship, forgiveness, and a seat at the table. And I think we're seeing things through new eyes, seeing things the way that God does. We need to be able to see these people, see even the lost and the possibilities, the call, the invitation that he has extended to them. He wants them and they can come to know him. And we need to see them with that possibility. it's hard to see when all we look at is the distance, the gap from where they are and where we know God would want them to be. That gap is enough uh, often to make us not even try or just lower our expectations. But if we take time to just stop and look a little closer through Christ's eyes, we can start to see some more details. We see the possibilities and we see 
the smaller baby steps that are required to, for them to take in order to reach the ultimate goal of becoming a follower of Jesus. And you know, like this story today in John chapter 4, when Jesus sat down at that well, it says that he was tired, it was midday, and he sat down. But when this woman came up, he saw her, and he knew, even though he was tired and exhausted from traveling, he knew that this is a woman who was far from God, but it was also a woman who his father loved and his father wanted to reach. And so he began to engage her and have this interaction with her. <clears throat> and I want to take a quick look at that interaction in just a minute. And before I do, I want to show you this quick idea. There was an evangelist by the name of Doug Shop, And this is um, from that book, Breaking the Huddle, that we said we're going to look through this month. Doug Shop was an evangelist, and he, he was someone who would work with a number of groups uh, to uh, bring them into discipleship program, have them share with, with their friends, and then they would see you know, people convert to Christianity uh, fairly regularly until he got to this particular point, and they started seeing months and months would go by with um, tons and tons of groundwork being laid, but they were seeing no fruit for it. And he said, you know, I don't know if this is just me, or is this bigger, like, is this happening, you know, across the board? So he sat down and called a meeting together with a whole group of leaders, and they said, what, what's going on here? Like, let's take a look at this whole process of uh, people coming to faith in Jesus. What got them to that point? They said, are, are we missing something? Maybe, maybe this journey to faith in Jesus is a little bit more complex. And so as they began to listen to one another's stories about these, um, pe the people's lives who came to faith, they started to see a common thread. And they found that for each of these people, they would all go, there were these different key points or thresholds, they called them. They would go through different thresholds before eventually reaching a place of faith in Jesus. And not only would they go through these, these crossing points, crossover points, but they seem to follow the same kind of pattern. And so this, I want to show you a graphic that demonstrates what those different thresholds were. It's called the five thresholds. And it starts with trust and then works their way around clockwise. So any given person, no matter where they are at, without faith in Jesus Christ, they are somewhere in, this, in these five thresholds. They may be way at the very beginning and they don't even have, a, have trust in Christians. In other words, uh, this is also printed out on the, sh on the chair in front of you if you want to look at that too. Um, but that's like absolute square one. If they have no trust in Christians or what they say or what they do, that's it. it you, there is no conversation to be had. But what it is is walking this person through these different thresholds, coming to a place of trust, and then walking them to a place where they're kind of curious about this whole thing. Don't really care, but a little curious, like, huh, what's that about? Like, but kind of nonchalant, not really a whole lot of interest. And they move then from a place of curiosity to a place of openness. So now there's a curiosity with a, well, I'm, I'm, I'm open to see what they say. Maybe there's, there could be something to it. And then moving from this place of openness to actually seeking. Now they're open to, they're not just open to hearing about Jesus. They're actually taking the initiative to go ask the questions. 
Notice up until that fourth threshold, it's all someone pursuing them. They're not going to take any initiative until they reach this place of seeking, the fourth step. And then finally, when they are the ones that are on the initiative to seek, we know what happens when we ask, seek, and knock. The door is answered, and they become a follower. And so any given person, you can think about any given person in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus, they are somewhere on this scale, somewhere in these thresholds. And it's interesting to start to think about this and consider where maybe they're at because it helps us to speak more relevantly into where they are, just just help to nudge them and draw them into the next threshold. You know, if we were just to to, to jump in front of some stranger who has no uh, trust for you and say, hey, Jesus loves you. He wants, like, we we can do that. Like, Like these street preachers who are, I mean, they don't just say Jesus loves you. Actually, they give a pretty condemning message. You are going to hell and you are damned. <laughs> but imagine, what do you think that does to someone who's somewhere on this scale and they have someone preaching fire and brimstone? They might go backwards on that scale. <laughs> right? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. But any given person is somewhere in here, and it's, cool, it's really cool to take a look and consider your different friends and where they're at and say, okay, well, if they're curious, they don't really care about it, but they're kind of curious about what I believe, how can I, um, how can I communicate in them in a, in a way that would help to pull them to the place of actually being open to hear about faith? You know what I mean? How can I move them to that next place? Now, Jesus, the way he sees, he sees into the heart of every individual. He knows exactly where they're at. He knows what they need to take the next step. And he's patient. He's willing to meet them right where they are, not expecting them to come all the way across the spectrum to him, but he goes to meet them right where they are. And that is exactly what he did with the woman at the well. And so what I want to do is just take a quick look. We're going to go through this very fast because I'm almost done. Is take a look at his interactions with her and see how that went. And Jay, if you can kind of follow along. Here we go. Trust. So he sees this woman. Now he's exhausted. He could just nap while he's waiting for the disciples to come back with food and just rest. But he sees this woman. He sees her with his father's eyes and says, this woman needs, needs the Lord. Now, uh, this is what he said. Will you give me a drink? And now her response is, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now that's across the board. Jews don't associate with Samaritans, much less as a Samaritan woman. This is probably borderline inappropriate interaction for him to be having. And yet he spoke up and simply said, will you give me a drink? He's just getting the conversation going. See, if he's sitting over here under the tree and she's at the well, she would see that he's there, but there's no trust. This is an understood thing. We don't talk to each other. But now he takes the initiative to reach out and say, I'd like to talk to you. And he does so in a way that gets her attention and moves her to this next place of being curious. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now he's taking the conversation and he's transitioning it and he's saying, I want to I tease out 
some curiosity in her. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kind of go there. So he uses this wordplay and starts talking about the living water, getting her to really think, like, what's going on here? Where's he going with this? And move, moving her to the to the next place. So she responds to that uh, to that uh, response from Jesus. The woman said to Jesus, "Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water." <clears throat> so now she's open to it. She's like, "Tell me more. I want this water." Go call your husband and come back. Uh, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So now he is speaking into her life in a way that he could have, he could have not known. So now this is really getting her going. So she, of course, she's going to want to hear more. Now she's open to hear it. Next slide. Now she's moving to this place of seeking. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's seeking him for an answer. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And so now she's going to him and seeking out some answers, some clarification for what's going on, even just bigger than her, but in regards to the Samaritans and the Jews and how do we worship God? And then finally, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And leads her to this place where she sees, not only is he a prophet, he sees things and he, she takes him at his word and believes that he is certainly the Messiah. Actually, no. how do you think this, if you can go back to that master slide with the five thresholds, how do you think this would have played out if he's, let's reverse the story. He's sitting by the well. She shows up to draw water. He looks over and says, I am the Messiah that everybody's waiting for. So, yeah, mock it. Like, this guy's a little more than thirsty. He's getting delirious. Sometimes when we go up and we want people to know Jesus so bad, but we just skip over the process. Like, people are in a process. It takes time. In order for us to, to lead, get them to a place where we don't just tell them, like, Jesus forgives you. Like, what does that mean? What do you mean he forgives me? We have to be willing to walk them through this process to get them to this place of now believing and trusting what we have to say, willing to seek it out, seek out the answers, and now open to accept what Jesus has. That's, you know, uh, what pops in my mind is the idea of Casting your pearls to swine is like throwing this huge treasure at someone who doesn't even know what to do with it. And so what we want to do is we're not talking about throwing things at swine. We're saying meet the people where they are so they understand what you're giving them. They can actually understand the good news. We call the gospel the good news. If I give somebody good news, but they don't understand how that's relevant or what that means to them, that's not good news. That's just an idea that you're communicating. What makes it good to them? If we can put ourselves in their shoes and say, well, how would this be meaningful to them specifically? 
Now we can actually not just communicate news, but good news to their life. It's relevant to them that says, there's something of value here that I need. See, Jesus taking the time to walk this woman through this process. This is what it looked like in that moment for him to share the Father's love with her. It looked like seeing her where she was at and then interacting, taking the initiative and having this conversation with her. And this is our, our mission. As a church, we say our mission is to love, both, both embrace his love, but then we just don't hold it just for ourselves. We share it freely because we received it freely. And so that's what we do with it. Now, practically speaking, to share God's love, that means to see a person where they are and being willing to stop and meet them in that place. That's what having a mission of loving people looks like. Being willing to take the time and gently guide them towards the next step, whatever their next step is. Because what person's A next step is will be different from what person B's next step is. So we have to see them where they're at. So this is why engaging God in this process involves discernment. And this is what I've been praying for us, for as a church, that the Lord would increase our discernment to be able to see what he sees and recognize what's, what's in front of our faces and then be able to speak into that place. And so this is kind of a fun way to, to consider and say, well, well, what does he see? Like, like it, let's actually take a minute to see where is that person at and what's going on in their life? What threshold maybe are they at? And then with that consideration, well, if they're at, say threshold two or three, they're curious or they're open. How can I encourage them, gently encourage them to that next step? And that second, the second thing it requires, not only is discernment first, it requires taking that initiative to actually meet them. The easiest way to start this, obviously, in all things, is through prayer. And so this is what, this is what I want to uh, challenge us as a church to do this morning. I'm going to turn this off. I want to challenge us to start to pray into these things, to prayerfully consider. And as a matter of fact, in front of each, each person's seat, there are a couple um, papers there for you. And one of them is something called a prayer map. So if you would, reach down and grab that sheet. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to take a look at this. What this prayer map is, uh, there's some instructions on it, but there's a circle in the center, and I think there's a diagram for this too, Jay. There's a diagram for this. There's a circle in the center where you would put your name. And then the circles around that center circle, you take some time to think, who are some people that I see on a fairly regular basis that are non-believers? You put their, fill their names in in those circles. And then hang on to this sheet, and you can keep them in prayer on a regular basis. And even take some time, when we go from this place, take some time to think about the five thresholds and look at those different names. Where do you think each person is currently in their journey to the Lord? Pray into that threshold. Ask him how he would have you to interact with them. What is a creative approach that you can use to reach them and help them cross the next threshold. So I'm going to give you just about two minutes 
So take some time to fill that out. The worship team is going to kind of play quietly. Take some time to fill that out, and then we will share in communion together.